You are listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, the wellness industry. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at lueepodcast.com. I'm your host today, and my name is Laura Creek Newman, and with me I have Ashlyn Noble. Hello. Lauren Bailey. Hi there. And a slightly refreshed Jem Newman. Slightly refreshed? <laughs> Goodness. Well, there's life in your eyes now, so that's something. Yeah, I, I, I did finish writing two finals today, so. Well, I'm glad that you're here, and I'm glad that we're doing this. This is a, a fun way to get together. So we thought we would talk about something that has only gained popularity over the last couple of decades, and especially over this last year, the wellness industry. So if anyone isn't familiar with that, if you can think of any kind of social media influencer that has some kind of a health tip for you, that is part of the wellness industry. The self-care, self-love, take this tonic, take this vitamin, eat this exact organic food. That is the wellness industry. This tea will make your tummy flat and give you uncontrollable diarrhea. Yeah, that's how it works, right? But tummy flat. <laughs> tummy flat, good. <laughs> so today we wanted to explore a few different aspects of this, uh, of this industry here. I'm going to start off by talking a little bit about what it even is or what the concept of wellness is. So I want to know from all of my lovely co-hosts here, how would you define wellness? Anything that someone who is chronically sick has been told to try to be better. <laughs> so, okay. All of the things under the umbrella of yoga and stretching and exercise and supplements. Okay, so it's a pretty broad category and it's often aimed at people who have uh, ongoing illnesses. Or like detoxes. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. huge in the wellness industry. I know that's one of your favorite topics. <laughs> Jim? Well, you know how sometimes you'll ask somebody how they are and they say, I'm well, how are you? <laughs> the way that I feel when somebody says I am well, that's the opposite of wellness. <laughs> Not only do I have like a, a disagreement with regard to the grammar, it just makes me feel icky. Um, when somebody says wellness, I think of uh, self care but in the kind of um you know how everything as it as it propagates on the internet becomes the worst possible form of you know uh what it can be <laughs> how how, how self-care has has come to mean in some places just like do whatever feels good to you in the moment because you deserve to feel good but uh without any thought to like trying to improve things in the future, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, curl up in the warm blanket, watch another episode of that show that you love, but don't do the things that you really need to, to keep your life going. Okay. But, you know, I'm not a particularly well person, so 
I'm not probably the best person to define it. Okay, so if you could distill that all down, wellness is a useful-ish concept that's been bastardized. Well, I think it's a lot of different things. Uh, within the context of what we're talking about today, it's mostly a, a grift, <laughs> a way of <laughs> parting people from their money. And I can't help but think of uh, the worried well, the people who are, by all objective measures, doing a lot better than the average, but want to make sure that their health is optimal, uh, or people who are not doing so well um, and thus are, are easy marks for, for people to sell them a, a quick fix. I'm incapable of answering a question. I'm sorry. <laughs> How would you define wellness, Lauren? Actual wellness or the wellness industry? <laughs> so it's interesting because they are, are linked and it's very difficult to think of the concept without the industry. I was going to comment on how both Gem and Ashlyn had had those kind of connotations within their, um, their definitions of wellness. Wellness is the state of not being completely awful and not being tippy-top. So okay. just the state of existing. Okay. So we are all well at the moment? I think we all exist? I assume. I haven't asked. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good, thanks. Come see, come I find this really interesting. And I think this is one of those situations where I'm going to pull out that classic phrase, wellness is kind of hard to define, but you know it when you see it. So it's this thing that we all have this kind of concept. And again, a lot of us automatically gravitate towards our impressions of or experiences with the wellness industry when we think of wellness. Um, and part of that is that wellness is a really hard to define thing. So I went looking for some definitions. First, I want to read you what the World Health Organization has as their definition of health. Okay, so Health is a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. You know, I've used this in my work and in different places here, and I actually, I like a lot of things about it. I like the fact that they talk about different aspects of health. Um, so it's, again, it's not just about being free of a disease or an, something like that. And they talk about how there are different dimensions to it. But... The fact that they say complete, well, that's kind of hard then. That's a pretty high bar for health. So there's some problems with it. But anyway, that is the World Health Organization definition of health. So here is the Global Wellness Institute's definition of wellness. Wellness is the active pursuit of activities, choices, and lifestyles that lead to the state of holistic health. This is interesting here. It's the journey, not the destination. Yes. No, that's exactly <laughs> the difference here. So that is in essence what the difference between wellness and even things like well-being is defined as. It is the fact that the person is taking active steps, but on a continual basis. So the idea of wellness is rooted in constant, unending self-improvement. <laughs> The derision in your voice when you say that. It sounds like such a toil. But the way, I the way I was going to summarize it is, I think, and listeners know me, I am a chipper sort of person. <laughs> the way I was going to summarize it was just, it's taking care of yourself. It's not, a, it's not about being well. It's about, it's about taking care of yourself. 
That seems reasonable to me. It should, and... Leaving the campsite cleaner than you found it. So that's the thing that's interesting, cleaner. Because things can always be cleaner. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you just need to leave it as clean as you found it. But that's not the Boy Scouts code. <laughs> Jem, you've fallen for the, the wellness tea here. Stop. <laughs> you know, like, uh, I, I'm no fan of the, the Boy Scouts sure. in general, but uh, I have found that actually a very healthy rule to, to follow in a lot of aspects of my life. So, As I say this, I'm not saying that improving ourselves or working towards building more skills, more capacity, whatever it happens to be. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is, is that wellness, this thing that has taken over so much of our, our lives and our media and our, and our attention, it is based on the fact that it is a constant pursuit. So it does not allow, in its very definitions, space for existing as is. It's because of this continual striving here that we end up with challenges. And some people will say, well, that's what makes it individualized because it's not laying out that exactly this and this exact that are wellness because it's going to look different for everyone. So I agree it does give some flexibility in there. However, it implies that if you are not actively, constantly doing something to improve yourself in some way, you are then not being well and you are not thriving. That's another thing that they're saying too. So the, the goal of wellness is not just existing, but it's thriving. Mm -hmm. So if you are not thriving, you are doing it poorly. You have to be the best possible version of yourself. Exactly. You are not- Well, f Yeah, you are not performing <laughs> And then the next wellness. day you have to do one better. <laughs> this is exactly it, right? When I found this definition- on the screen, on websites. I'm like, aha, this is why it is so challenging. The wellness industry, it is based on helping, ostensibly helping people try to feel better, especially over the last pandemic year where we've had a tough time. And I know that, like, I've had tough times, but I know many, many people have had so many harder times and continue to have that. I mean, globally, we're all in a very strange place. It's hard and we all want to feel better but it's this, this end goal that is always going to be a step further than where we are. Yeah, it'll that always makes recede it in the distance. Exhausting. Yeah. So as you said, Ashlyn, my derision, I think I've given it away a little bit on how I feel about this. And don't get me wrong. I don't think that changing your habits, if you want to change a habit, is bad. I don't think that, you know, building a new skill is bad. I, I don't think that any of these things are wrong. But then the expectation of the wellness industry and this definition of wellness as part of how you are a successful human being means that if, like we said, if you're not continually doing it and getting better and better all the time, then at some point, you've failed, you've let yourself go, you are no longer taking care of yourself. So it is actually idealizing perfection way more than it, than it would let on on the surface. That's interesting because I definitely agree with a lot of what you're saying. Um, and I think that it is a problem in the sense that you can never be well enough. You can always... You can always get one better. You can always buy one more tea. Um, but at the same time, 
having a goal that is incremental, uh, especially when you're in a really hard place, and we've all been in hard places, having a goal that's incremental, just making things a little bit better, a little bit at a time, can be very helpful. And not thinking about how how am I going to be the perfect me, because that's not attainable right now, but how can I get out of bed, you know, can I get showered today? Can I get dressed every day this week? Can I make sure that I'm fed every day? You know, like being able, if you're in a really hard place, being able to set incremental goals, I think can be really helpful leading you on a path to health. Um, I think, as you are saying, Laura, I think that the, the trouble comes when it's never enough. And I think as someone who works on a daily basis with people setting goals and doing behavior changes and adding different things into their daily routine and dealing with those daily challenges, I agree, Jim. It's so helpful to have very small and attainable goals and it's so much more helpful than the popular media talks about to do that, like you said, because it's a thing you can do today. It's also helpful, though, to have a bit of an endpoint. And this is the problem with this wellness definition. And this is what leads into so many of the other issues with the wellness industry itself. Because you can always change your end goal, right? But you need to have an ending place, right? Because the, all those little steps are going to get there. So I, I do agree. I, I don't think that you're wrong, but I think that's, again, where this nebulous, open-ended, constant pursuit is, you know, well, first of all, it is perfect for capitalism. <laughs> and, uh -huh. um, you know, the wellness industry was made for capitalism. Actually, it was made by capitalism. Mm -hmm. But... That is where this optimization that you mentioned that is part of this goal is actually really detrimental because there is never enough. So that got a little deeper than I expected it to, but I liked it. <laughs> Excellent. And what's interesting is when you go into some of these websites like the Global Wellness Institute, they actually talk about the difference between well-being and wellness. And the wellness term is incredibly closely associated with marketing and money-making ventures, whereas well-being is more so a state of feeling, like happiness or some other kind of, of state there. It's less tangible. You can't make money off it the same way. Well, what's the point then? Right. So the wellness industry itself, much like its definition, is incredibly broad, poorly defined, uh, full of full of areas for interpretation, and there's always room for something more in it. Largely, it is built off of pretty much anything that uh, white Western cultures could appropriate from any other culture around the world, like any other kind of tradition that seemed kind of interesting or mystical or spiritual in some kind of way, that, that is 
part of it. It includes uh, different physical movements or therapies as well. It includes usually a lot of attention on dietary supplements uh, with the assumption that the foods available are not able to provide optimal health and that we all need additional things. So it's full of these products, but even more than that, and especially in the age of social media, it is full of people selling us these products and telling us how important it is to use these products and how it will change our lives to make us more well. But the image that we get of wellness is the same image that we get for diets. It's white, it's thin, conventionally attractive, usually very rich. So the wellness industry talks all about how wellness is this active pursuit, this expectation that everybody needs to be constantly improving themselves, otherwise they're not thriving. Yet, it's not for everybody. It's not by everybody. And because so many of the parts of things that would be called wellness are not part of public health systems, it's inaccessible to a huge segment of the population. So wellness is this already unrealistic goal for the people with the most resources and completely and utterly unobtainable for the people with the least. So wellness is another class division. It's another way to say, oh, you're not taking care of yourself, therefore you are lesser than me. Thoughts, guys? I'm just kind of monologuing now. <laughs> well, I like where you're going with this. Yeah. I'm, I'm always in favor of a turn toward class warfare. Yeah. So there was a great quote that I want to read from a really good article called The Dark Side of the Wellness Industry by Sophie McBain. And she writes, the modern cult of wellness promotes pseudoscience, entrenches health inequalities, and co-ops political terms such as self-love and empowerment into something you can buy. It encodes a rampant individualism, the idea that you alone are responsible for your well-being. That's something that comes up a lot, I think, when we're talking about specifically mental health. You know, we, we are complex, but this individualism, this, uh, you know, taking charge of your life, you know, you see this with uh, with uh, Jordan Peterson a lot, uh, you know, clean up your own buckle, uh, that kind of stuff. It, this idea that, that you are ultimately responsible for your own well-being sounds nice, especially to those with sufficient power to to take that control. But if you need to work two jobs... If you have been laid off in the midst of a pandemic and your landlord is demanding the three months of rent that you owe, how are you supposed to not be <laughs> just really fucking depressed? Yeah. You know, uh, and it's... Uh, Meditate more. Exactly. Yeah. Right? Think harder about it and then you will not be sad. There are uh, external factors in play. There are material conditions that impact these things. And I think that a lot of this wellness marketing uh, ignores that to a large extent because the people who can't afford to buy their products 
can't afford to buy their products, so they're not the people that the wellness industry cares about. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's harder to sell something when you have to give a nuanced explanation of why it's not going to fix things immediately. <laughs> and that's where marketing comes in and these types of products are great products, services, whatever it is. I mean, in wellness, there's an overemphasis on individual, the impact of individual factors. And I mean, I'm a dietitian. Eating better food if you can, like, or eating regularly or, or, you know, just like eating in a way that nourishes your body probably will help you feel good and it can make some things better, but it's not going to fix everything. Moving your body in a way that feels good to you regularly will probably help things work better and feel better, but it's not going to fix everything. And even if you do both of those things, it's still not going to fix the fact that you can't get a job and that your landlord is demanding rent and things like that. Like, it's not to say that these individual factors aren't useful if you can still do them, but like, there, it shouldn't be like, well, you're doing all these things, therefore you're now well. Well, no, you're not, right? It's really challenging. So I found an article from way back in 2003. Oh. Yep. My graduation year. Oh, so long ago now. All about the wellness industry and and where it's taking over in parts of public health or how it interacts with public health. And in 2003, the wellness industry still, like it existed already, but it was in a much smaller state compared to what it is today. So it, it had a really interesting perspective because in a way, the wellness industry has picked up where the traditional medical systems had been lacking. Our, our current medical model is so heavily based on acute care treatment needs. You're sick right now, I'm going to treat you right now. You're hurt right now, I'm going to treat you right now. The idea of prevention was, it was different. Like it's always been evolving depending on where we were at in terms of our societies and technologies and all these kinds of things. But that's what the health model is built off of right now. And, but we know that prevention of these, of chronic diseases or, or some of those types of things are really helpful for people that like for just the overall health and quality of life of a society helping to reduce some of these factors um, early so that people can live better for longer. Um, so these are important things. So that's where the wellness industry has really grasped on because public health is wonderful. They're doing amazing work right now. Everybody shout out to all your public health workers and doctors and all the people in that field right now. But, you know, they're also not uh, a lot of their work is behind the scenes and they I'm sure they don't get the funding that they need to do for that. And again, it's it's really challenging. So the wellness industry sort of picked up the slack there. They grabbed onto that idea of prevention in that optimization term. And a lot of people loved that because especially when the wellness industry started to take off, you had a large population of people with a decent amount of disposable income. You had a lot of um, like the the baby boomer generation who were still working, um, getting closer to retirement in that, but they're also starting to get a bit older, maybe starting to have some health problems. And they were a big part that jumped on this wagon. What do you mean closer to retirement? They haven't retired yet. They're still closer than me, Lauren. <laughs> 
Well, none of us are ever going to get to retire. So Don't say that. <laughs> anyway, there was a lot of people that jumped on it, on this prevention and, and this kind of thing here. So it's actually the argument that they propose is a very interesting thing. So we have public health, whose role is prevention and that. But they're actually in this place where in many cases now they have to regulate and even steer people away from these wellness treatments because they are not safe or not founded in evidence or whatever it is. So that's a real challenge because on the one hand, you're trying to promote this prevention and feeling good and these types of factors. And on the the other hand, the public might see, well, then why are you telling me not to do these things that are wellness and prevention? You're giving me mixed messages. I'm not going to believe you. I really like where you've gone with this definition of wellness. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I, ju- I feel I don't have any comments. Like, just, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Same here, but that's normal for me. <laughs> as we continue to talk about the wellness industry, or as you interact with the wellness industry in your day-to-day life, there are probably things in it, like all of these types of schemes, that do in fact help us feel good or feel better or help you in your day-to-day life. And that's okay. And that's fine. But just remember that at the core of so much of this, at the marketing, at the influencers, at the way the products are priced and all of this is this idea that it is never going to be enough. That this entire idea on which the industry is founded means that you will always be inadequate. So arm yourselves and go forth. Stop chasing an unattainable ideal. Exactly. Well, thank you for giving me that soapbox. I appreciated it. (laughs) Now we'll go on to Lauren, who's going to talk about how some of the technology and fitness parts of wellness may not be supporting true wellness. I had originally proposed a segment topic that was so broad that Laura suggested we do it as an entire future episode. No, no. She said entire future podcast. Yeah, that's <laughs> okay. how I interpreted it. That is in- All right. No, that A is correct, Ashley. Yes, good. I, could, I was already sketching out several outlines <laughs> from, for podcast episodes. So I'm glad you've got the time for that. <laughs> yeah, no. Life, the universe, and everything wells. Jim looks so proud of himself right now. I would call it well, actually. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, that said, I chose a narrower topic that I've seen a lot of lately, and honestly, for most of my life. And, content warning, I'm going to talk about eating disorders, so if that's going to cause you harm today, please go ahead and hit that skip button. We've all seen the online ads for that one simple trick, or do this and never gain a pound again, or my current favorite, your city here, woman, discovered this. Doctors hate her. Oh, yeah. And if you click on the ad, you still don't learn what this weird trick is, unless, of course, you give them money. So I'll save you your credit card security and your online advertising algorithms. The weird trick is usually some sort of disordered eating. Yay! 
Fad diets are nothing new, and arguably, they are the backbone of the entire wellness industry. Up until the past few years, I have been on some sort of restricted diet plan since I was eight years old. And that didn't get started in the 1980s. This goes way back further than me, obviously. It goes as far back as Hippocrates. He was the one who first wrote a diet book to tell people to eat less and to exercise more, to become a more beautiful and worthy human being. And doctors haven't learned much since. <laughs> he also encouraged his patients to develop bulimia to negate extra indulgences that they may indulge in. Mm-hmm. Founder of medicine, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's, it goes right back to the beginning. Oh, you broke your arm? Well, you're too fat. Yeah. There are also several examples of early Christians starving themselves to be holy. Yep. Enough that it has its own term. Anorexia mirabilis, or holy anorexia. St. Jerome, St. Anthony, and St. Basil all intentionally fasted. Was that what brought on their visions? Probably. I went down a rabbit hole on the history of bad dieting advice, and I'm cutting out like a whole piece here that is really super interesting, and maybe I'll come back to it for another show. Speaking of, you know, starting a whole new podcast. <laughs> Baseline is, restrictive diets don't work. I'm saying it out loud to remind myself, because the multi-billion dollar per year weight loss industry, which is part of the wellness industry, it has such a hold on my brain that I forget. And that's the way they keep you hooked. This diet is based on all new science. Of course you failed before. You won't this time. And people, smart, savvy, compassionate people, fall for it because of our society's hatred of fat people. Yep. And this shit is pervasive. One of the articles in my show notes, the Women's Health Mag one, spends six or seven paragraphs talking about how diet culture and online before and after pictures are ruining people's health, and then its last paragraph is, want to see some real before and after pics? Check out these readers' weight loss success stories and get tips on losing weight the healthy way. Wow. <laughs> so close and yet so far, Women's Health. Oh, that right there, that line. Oh, those diets don't work. Lose weight mm -hmm. the healthy way. Mm -hmm. That Every time. Every one of them is the healthy time. That's so, yeah. like, I feel like that's been amplified lately. Now, like, as the ideas of diet culture and things like that are becoming more mainstream, I think that people are amplifying that kind of talk. It Diets sounds... are so bad. But do this and you'll be healthy. Yeah. It sounds almost like something an abusive spouse would say, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. like... Yeah, you're in an abusive relationship with the wellness industry. Exactly. This time it'll be different. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, God. I spend a lot of my day on Twitter because that's how I compensate for not having a personality. <laughs> so I see a lot of tweets that are actually advertisements, especially ones for diet apps and intermittent fasting apps. I can't prove that it's because I follow a lot of body positivity and fat activists, but it's very telling that after I've finished reading a thread about fat activism, one of these ads will show up in my feed a few tweets below. I've noticed it at least five times in the past two weeks, but I have no way of proving that it's not just confirmation bias. Yeah, it's hard. Laura has been seeing a lot of ads about burnt-out doctors. Yeah, I constantly, <laughs> for the last two weeks, I get constant ads for these programs to help, like, stress management and thriving programs for physicians. And I'm like, I am stressed, but I am not a physician. You are advertising to the wrong spouse. <laughs> well, because you're the one who would listen. 
Oh, yeah. oh, but I did see an ad for a mindfulness journal for doctors' wives. <laughs> Ouch. I, I almost signed up because I'm like, I got to see what this is all about. But I'm just like, <laughs> I don't want them to sell my email address. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's like Ashlyn's brother's fiance having a book called So You Love a Cop. <laughs> yeah. And I, the subtitle, okay, I can't remember. Maybe I'll try and find it. But it was something like, when they bring the anger home was the subtitle of this book. Yeah, it was real bad. <laughs> what is it? One in three cops? Yep. Yeah. yeah. One in three cops. Get out now. If you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> leave him. <laughs> you're not married yet. That got postponed. <laughs> Special message to one maybe listener. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so re- reeling it back to these intermittent fasting apps, I report and block these ads each time they appear on my Twitter timeline, but they come from so many companies, it's impossible to keep up. On my Twitter timeline, whenever I see any ad, I just block the account. <laughs> oh yeah, me too. <laughs> so many. For some reason, they give me a lot of, a lot of like sports team ads. I'm like, what in my Twitter feed <laughs> tells you that, that I would be into sports? They're desperate. <laughs> the only accounts that you haven't blocked yet. <laughs> Pretty much. The copy on these ads is usually the same. There's pictures of four people. They're in different age groups with the ratio of numbers of hours you should eat versus the hours you should fast per day above their heads. It's not the kind of Twitter ratio I like to see. (laughs) Intermittent fasting is just gateway anorexia. How do I know this? Because it's how my brain is programmed after decades of doing it. Sans app. If I eat more than one meal per day, the anxiety hamsters start running around in my brain. I have conditioned myself that food is my enemy. No, that's not quite true. Fat is my enemy, and food is the sneaky way it slithers into my life. If I eat, I have failed. I have lost, and I am a horrible human being. And Ashlyn can attest to seeing this struggle every day, and it really, really pisses her off. I don't think it pisses me off as accurate. <laughs> well, I think she cares about you, Lauren. <laughs> Yeah, surprise. I love you. (laughs) Some of my actions towards myself make my wife angry on my behalf. And that's what she's pissed off at. Mm. She's not angry Mm. at me. She's actually angry at the way that I'm acting about myself. Yeah. That sucks so much. Like, I am so... (laughs) God damn it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm just trying to tell you how much these messages are ingrained in me. How I wrote this out this afternoon with tears streaming down my face. I know these plans are nonsense, but working against this programming is so hard. Yeah. I did a search on my phone in the apps app and found at least 15 of these programs that can track just intermittent fasting. That wasn't any other diet app or wellness app. 15 for intermittent fasting. They have names like Zero and Thermometer? Femometer? Gross. It'd be uh, Femometer. The Femometer would be the unit of measurement (laughs) another one's called fastic and all promise to time your eating for you a big like block comes up on your phone when you're out of your eating hours oh so if you're between 25 and 40 one app says that you should eat for five hours a day i'm assuming not continuously eating (laughs) and fast for 19 oh no another says that you should eat in an eight hour window and fast for 16 And all of them, again, provide timers that tell you when to stop eating, and they do offer coaching, all for a monthly fee. Oh, of course they do. Ugh. 
Oh, I'm sorry, are you having trouble doing this thing that is impossible? <laughs> well, we'll be happy to take your money to pretend to help you. Yep. One proclaims that it's better health, not just better weight. Better is doing a lot of heavy lifting in that sentence. Are you all familiar with where that idea of better health comes from with intermittent fasting? Yes, but please tell. So for anybody who isn't familiar, intermittent fasting started off as the the longevity diet, basically. Yep. It started off as a not really starvation diet, but based on some research that mostly mice who ate less yes. than their needs uh, lived a little longer than mice who ate ad libitum, like as much as they wanted. Yeah, so, extreme calorie restriction. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how extreme it was, but it was basically less than what they what their bodies really wanted to run off of, like lower than their metabolic rate, basically. And so that's been heavily extrapolated into humans. And so it's basically, and this is another reason, I should have mentioned this and I totally forgot, but the wellness industry is basically our manifestation of fear of death. That's really what it is. Damn, Laura. Yeah. <laughs> Death stalks you at every turn. First of all, it is trying to make everybody like thin and white and rich. But ultimately, it's trying to shield us from the inevitable. Ah! Ah! There it is. Death. That's, that's really what it is. So intermittent fasting, it got popular among people who... Like, these are the same type of people who are all into cryogenics and that kind yeah. of stuff. Like, it's basically, Your I want to live forever. So if I can squeeze out an extra two or three years by eating once a day, I'm going to do that. And like, you know what? I try to be very broad and know that humans exist on a wide spectrum in every possible way. And there is something that is going to feel good and feel right and lead to like a happy, healthy life for everybody. But there's a lot of extremes and a lot of outliers there. And so we can't recommend that to everybody. So there, there's probably a couple people out there who legitimately feel their best on something like that. But the number of people who are actually going to be healthier in that from this type of extreme restriction it's probably incredibly low. So to generalize it to the population is ridiculous. And we have no proof that this is actually going to happen in humans. Anyway, I'm off my tangent. Humans are afraid of death, especially the white ones in the West. Go on, Lauren. <laughs> well, that about sums it up. Thanks for coming, folks. <laughs> Guess we can wrap up early tonight. Humans are scared <laughs> of death. So I went into the... When I was looking at these apps on my phone... I went into the ratings and reviews section and they're all like 4.8 and 4.9 out of 5 and all of the reviews are full of exclamation points. <laughs> and yeah, the euphoria of losing 10 kilograms of water weight in a month combined with the brain fog that comes from not having nourished yourself, that might lead you to think that it's the best thing ever, but we know that's not true. I would like to see what somebody says after, I don't know, six months of trying a, fa a fasting app. Mm -hmm. Fasting and other restrictive diets mess with your metabolism as well as your brain. As I can tell you now, after having done it, I've been on some sort of crash diet since I was 8 years old and I'm now 40. You know you're going to gain back the weight, and then some. You're caught in the cycle anyway, because of course maybe this time will be different. 
Even the copy in a WebMD article about the dangers of crash diets includes helpful tips for weight loss, and the sponsored ad on the page are for fasting diet plans and body detox diets, and look how awful your belly fat looks. Ugh. It's impossible to find one corner of the internet that doesn't shame you for your weight or your fitness level or any other ableist concern. Speaking of ableism, let's move on now to a related and not-so-surprising topic. Can I pop my story about uh, my doctor in here? It's my favorite anti-fat thing my doctor has ever said to me. So she was bullying me to lose weight. And I was presenting the evidence that when people try and lose weight, it almost invariably winds up that they become heavier than they were to start with, given enough time. Something extremely small, like 2% of people, are able to lose weight and keep it off for an extended period of time. So I said, if you are asking me to try and lose weight, what you are saying is that you don't believe the evidence that it will result in me being heavier, because that's not what you want, I know that. Uh, And she said, well, but you could be one of the 2%, you just have to try harder. Oh Oh my god! It's It's so infuriating. Right? Like, you're a doctor, theoretically, you should understand the science, I don't understand why you refuse to accept this science. Yeah. There's so much fat phobia in medicine, and... Yeah, there is. Oh, I purposely didn't get into that in my segment because Again, that's another podcast <laughs> yeah <laughs> in fact there's some good ones on that kind of thing that exist i can't name any right now but if i think of them i will link them in the show notes <laughs> yeah I, I brought this this topic up in one of my tutorial sessions a while ago because i just finished uh, of course you did thank you <laughs> a gastro gastroenterology block and it's it's very frustrating because like like it's it's true that excess weight especially in certain distributions you know statistically increases likelihood of certain diseases and like being heavier you know makes your joints wear out faster like from a mechanics perspective uh but it's also true that like there are genetic factors that influence your propensity for diseases and we don't you know shame people (laughs) for having certain genetics and we also can't factor out the the kind of wear and tear that living with fat phobia every day does to people. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yep. Yeah, it's 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 rough and it is it is pervasive in medical school as well. Yeah. And there is there's some pushback against it, but um improvement on that score seems to be uh slow and marginal. Want to give a shout out to Dr. Megan Springman for being a fat doctor herself and completely not on board with the you know, fat is bad school of medical thought. And it's sad that she's leaving the practice that, <laughs> that we met her in. So I'm going to have to find another doctor. Aww. Yeah. So I want to get back to ableism because it's all connected. I want to move to another not so surprising topic connected with the, the internet and our devices. Fitbit and Apple Watch and other such trackers. Yay, I got my Fitbit on right now. Woo! (laughs) I only just found out that some of them in the more modest price points, so not Fitbit, because we tested with Ashlyn's today, um, but they won't let you lower the goal step count per day below 2,000. And only Apple Watch converts wheelchair use into motion count. Fitbit has wheelchair users in their advertising, but cannot provide accurate tracking information for anything other than steps taken with legs. 
Oh, their their tracking is ridiculous. My favorite. <laughs> I don't think any of them can provide accurate tracking for anything. <laughs> no, no, oh, it's no. it's ridiculous. Like I. I will be walking and watch the step count not go, but then I go teach a class and I speak with my hands quite um, <laughs> expressively. I know, surprise, everybody. Um, and I've suddenly racked up a thousand steps, even though I moved a total of like four feet in that entire hour. So yep. yeah, that's bull. <laughs> go on. Yeah, but they, it even says, like one of my articles in the show notes, the person um, actually spoke to Fitbit about it and they're saying yeah yeah there's there's no way we can accurately track that and we're not ever going to so <laughs> suck it up yeah Nintendo Ring Fit Adventures the fitness accessory and game for the Switch what yeah yep. have you heard of it no it's, you've yeah. never heard of this oh it's so popular it's, basically, it's I'm not a Pilates RPG game yep. yeah you fight things by doing exercises what <laughs> and I feel like you might be into it yeah. Yeah, it can it can be altered to account for some disabilities. Like it can be used uh, oh. by wheelchair users, etc. But its leg sensor is only rated for people with skinny thighs. Mm. An aftermarket accessory strap for fat people markets itself as for anybody, even up to 150 pounds. Wait, what? Wow. Okay, yeah, that's so not this a typo. is marketed at children, then, are right? You, are you because sure most... you mean to say kilos. This was uh, something, I don't have a source for this, sadly, because it was from a fat activist on Twitter who picked up a strap for hers because she wanted to use her ring fit. And it's like, up to 150 pounds. She's like, bitch, I'm 400 pounds. What are you expecting me to do? This is really interesting because actually um, ring fit gets talked about a lot in a group that I'm in on Facebook called Fit Fatties. Uh, and people often say like that the strap was way roomier than they expected and even people with large size are able to use it. So <laughs> That's cool. well, it might not be rated for it, but... Yeah, um, like I was saying, this person is upwards of 400 pounds and she did not find it sure. useful and had to go to the aftermarket where it was even more ridiculous. <laughs> so... Again, this is secondhand information. I don't have a Ring Fit Adventures myself. And if any one of our wonderful listeners wants to buy us one so I can test and give uh -huh. a review, <laughs> I would be glad to accept it. Yeah, I'd love to try that. They're hard to find. They've been out of stock for a long time in the during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, It seems like things that were out of stock all year are finally starting to get back in stock. Like I was able to get a printer that I've been looking for. Like even switches are starting to be available again. Stuff that was really hard to find. Webcams. Ugh. So again, I'm purposely not getting into medical ableism or fat phobia because this is about the wellness industry. Oops. Oopsies. <laughs> <laughs> it's all connected, folks. Yeah. Life, the universe, and everything else. Yeah. <laughs> But I wanted to talk about the messages that we're getting every day. So it's every time we look at a magazine, or read a blog, or try to purchase an accessory for a video game. <laughs> every time I open my social media, or a website that hosts Google Ads, I get told that I'm ugly, and worthless, and disgusting, and the only thing that will fix it is this one simple trick. Just using my average internet usage during the day, I counted more than 30 ads telling me that I was too fat or to lose weight. That's exhausting. Predatory weight loss fixes are everywhere. And like most foam wellness, as, I, as we've been saying, they don't work. You don't lose weight by fasting or by a liquid diet or by cutting out carbs, which was the first diet I went on when I was eight years old. And you don't lose weight by acupuncture. 
the one simple trick to living your best life as we've been saying is to nourish your body and your mind participate in whatever movement brings you joy at whatever rate you want and to stay the fuck off of twitter (laughs) (laughs) i think that should have been item number one Thank you, Lauren, for that. I think that was an excellent overview of this. And some of these things that seem a little bit, uh, you know, are innocuous or just for fun and how they can lead us down uh, rabbit holes that uh, end up in bad places. Don't fast. If you really want to talk about it in depth, I will be glad to talk to you about it. Just eat food. Like, like just eat food. (laughs) So... We've covered a lot about the wellness industry already, and Ashlyn has some additional parts of the wellness industry to talk about. Some of the perhaps more insidious parts. So Lauren has covered QAnon on this podcast before, but it was a while ago, and there have been quite a few developments in that whole saga. Who boy. What's happening. What? Since the inauguration of a new president? I can't imagine. It was, I think, only maybe halfway through Trump's presidency that Lauren talked about QAnon, I think. Like, it's been quite a while. Has it really been that long? It's been been a couple of years. Only putting out one podcast a month, we really, like, uh, topics that seem not very long ago were (laughs) quite some time. I'm still not over the research I had to do for that, so. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One of the keys to QAnon is that it's kind of a meta conspiracy that links together all kinds of other conspiracies. At its core, QAnon centers around the idea that a huge group of global elites are running a pedophilia ring, and Trump is bravely fighting against the baby killers, nearly single-handedly. They believe that Trump is a light worker, someone called inexorably toward doing good for others in the world. (laughs) Can you imagine believing that? There's just so much information that should tell you that that is a wrong belief. Like, I, I can't imagine being in a position to believe that anybody is is that. Sure, but, <laughs> but Trump... But certainly not a businessman or politician, let alone anybody of Trump's particular character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, truly unbelievable. So that's the first part. The key part of QAnon is this belief that Trump is fighting against a pedophilia ring. So keep that in mind. Pretty well. The coronavirus pandemic unfortunately proved fertile ground for conspiracy theories of all types, many of which became wrapped up in QAnon uh, and believed and disseminated by their followers. Most of these conspiracy theories are really just rehashing of old, tired, anti-Semitic tropes. Global elites asserting control over the masses through lockdowns or vaccinations. So although QAnon has its origins in things like Pizzagate, it really started bringing in a new crowd this past year. The wellness crowd. In March of 2020, right at the beginning of when everything was getting shut down over here, holistic psychiatrist Kelly Brogan, MD, (laughs) former Goop contributor and antidepressant opponent who has 125,000 Instagram followers, started claiming that there's no proof germs lead to illness, and as such, quote, there is potentially no such thing as the coronavirus. So hard when they have MD after their names and people just unquestionably believe. Like, how? How do these people do? What? Uh... Well, we're going to get into that. Why do these people believe 
when these uh, Instagram influencers tell them things. So ever since uh, this started, Instagram has been an extremely useful recruiting tool for QAnon supporters. The hashtags associated with the movement, like hashtag Save the Children or hashtag WWG1WGA, which stands for Where We Go One, We Go All, and grammatically nonsensical bullshit. So those hashtags have millions of posts. So why are image-obsessed influencers and MAGA hat-wearing Trumpers getting in on the same boat? Kaz Ross, a researcher in the areas of misinformation and the far right, argues that the fusion between conspiracy theories and the wellness sphere has much to do with the clear overlap in their distrust of traditional institutions. Also money. (laughs) Sure, also money. Capitalism is at the root of all evil. Uh, Conspiracy and wellness circles share an outsized obsession with self-reliance, even if one faction expresses it through firearms and the other through crystals. An excellent quote I found that I did not write. (laughs) Influencers caught in the QAnon conspiracy are able to quickly rope in more and more of their followers. While mommy bloggers and lifestyle coaches and whatnot used to try and stay apolitical and like very bland for social justice issues and stuff. You don't want to alienate any potential audience member, right? Exactly. They want to appeal to the widest possible audience. Um, But it's now shifted the trend Uh, is now more towards authentic content. Mm. So sharing things about challenges in your mental health or motherhood or sexuality. So for many influencers who have spent years building intimate relationships with their audience, all this candor has served to make those bonds tighter. Mm -hmm. And if followers can trust these women on domestic matters of interior design and party planning and postpartum depression and family emergency, maybe they can trust them on darker, more political issues as well. They make these widely appealing memes like love yourself enough to advocate for your beliefs in pink and floral. And as one article said, it's hard to disagree with those statements. So you hit the little heart button. But the hashtags will be full of QAnon adjacent stuff and the algorithm learns that you want to see more of those things. And people are just gradually pulled in deeper and deeper and like statements become slowly more toward the, you know, we have to make sure that Trump is in office so that he can stop the baby-eating horrible people. Uh, and it's so smooth and gradual from love yourself enough to stand up for something you believe in to Trump is our savior. <laughs> so insidious. Fast-acting Overton window. <laughs> yeah. So one popular yoga instructor, Sean Korn, has been involved in the wellness and yoga communities on Instagram for many years, and she's now speaking up against QAnon. Quote, I just didn't think that I would be having to talk about things like a cabal of people in the U.S. that are kidnapping children and drinking their blood to gain power, Corin said. I never thought this would be a conversation I would have to have with my community to say, like, this isn't true, this isn't happening, please use more discernment. (laughs) (laughs) Quote, while suburban moms with yoga mats might not be the first image that pops into most people's minds when they think about online conspiracy theories... Corn says that it actually makes a lot of sense, especially as QAnon followers flood hashtags like Save the Children. There's a lot of women in this community who are sensitive and empathic, and so you bring in, you know, victimized children, and you're going to appeal to that part of them that wants to do something, that wants to engage, Corn says. Silberberger, ahead of the Golden Tinfoil Hat, a German organization that looks into conspiracy theories and helps people get out of that subculture, says that requests for help getting loved ones out of the movement have doubled during the pandemic and are now up to about 30 per week. Oh, wow. Silberberger says that in about 90% of cases, 
the conspiracy believer had a background in something holistic, spiritual, new age, alternative in some way. So it's just the widest growing population of their adherents is are people from the wellness side of Instagram, basically, uh, and Facebook to an extent. But Instagram is just is the worst. Such a easy place for them to recruit now. End quote. If you are able to make this covetable, beautiful aesthetic and then attach these conspiracy theories to it, that normalizes the conspiracy theories in a very specific way that Instagram is particularly good for. Huh. The internet is scary. Yeah, it really, it really, really is. The internet was a mistake. <laughs> the internet was a mistake. <laughs> Computers are bad. Nobody should use them. I was just telling my coworker about that when something was happening with our computers. I'm like, as my software developer <laughs> husband says. <laughs> oh, man. that That's a big jump that, again, hindsight prior to 2020, I don't know that we could have seen that jump really happening, but... That's weird, because hindsight is 2020. <laughs> oh, God. I was trying not to... Oh. You just had to you just had to bring us back in, eh? Jen? Hindsight is average vision. Great saying. Makes perfect sense. I'm fifteen twenty now. Oh wow. Ooh. Good for you. Like superpowers. Lasers. <laughs> <laughs> Expensive lasers. <laughs> All right. Well, yes, this pandemic has taken us to weird places. Thank you, Ashlyn. That was really good. heard that we have some listener feedback from our previous episode of Soupcast. Soupcast got us more feedback than we have gotten in a long time, I have to say. Did we make people mad? <laughs> Mostly. <laughs> Excellent. I'm I'm looking forward to it and I will say I had a ton of fun doing sandwich cast and I had a lot of fun doing Soupcast. So, we'll we'll have to keep that going. Lauren had a couple of things to bring for feedback tonight. Yes, I have Dave's questions for the panel. Okay. Regarding soup. <laughs> he was so pleased. <laughs> Dave's first question, and Jem remember to turn down Laura's gain. <laughs> Dave's first question. Is frozen soup still soup? It doesn't fit Ashlyn's definition of soup. And Ashlyn's definition of soup has to be It has liquid. to be a fluid. It was something it... about it has to fit in, like, as, yeah, it has to flow into a it has bowl. It to take yeah. the shape of its container. So frozen soup, not soup. Yes, it's still soup. I still go with intent, so yes, it's soup. It's soup. I'm going to go with soup. And it will soup. be soup again. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Once in future soup. <laughs> All right, next question. Remember, this is from Dave. How many crackers do you have to put in to stop soup from being soup. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's a good question. Um, and you can't use the pornography rule because that defeats the purpose of soup guest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still mad that you guys circumvented so many of my soups by inventing the must be intended to be eaten on its own rule. <laughs> <laughs> we know you, noble. Well, I mean, at that point, we would have just ended up with, is a battery sitting in water a soup? Like, <laughs> <laughs> So, how many crackers do you have to put in? Maybe not a number, but maybe get to a viscosity level. Uh, well, certainly if it can be scooped and maintain the shape of the scoop when put into a separate dish, it is no longer a soup. So the cookie dough rule. It has become some kind of a weird uncooked casserole? 
I'm I'm actually <laughs> gross. I'm not sure about this. <laughs> but I think Jello might be a soup. <laughs> no. Hmm. It stands on its own. Is it once in future soup? Yeah, we we may have different definitions of soup. We obviously have different mine. definitions <laughs> of soup. That's why we spent 2 hours talking about soup. It was fun to edit. <laughs> and that's where that gain turn down comes in. <laughs> I did back up from the mic a bit. I, I know. <laughs> so what is your answer, Jim? Or are you just going to ponder the existentiality of soup as a consumable? Haven't we all been for a month? <laughs> I feel like once you can't pour it anymore. I think. I'm not sure. if So if the cracker is added after... I'm not sure the cracker is part of the soup. Is it a condiment? No, it's not a condiment. No, I think the cracker has just absorbed some soup, but the soup is still there. But it's <laughs> But that's like saying, "Okay, I put a can of like mushroom soup into my green bean casserole, therefore it's actually green bean soup?" No, 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 no. The soup is still there, Jem. No, it's like it's like saying <laughs> It's obviously green it's, bean soup. It's like saying if you spill some soup and you wipe it up with a sponge, does the soup that you wiped up suddenly cease to be soup? No, it's still soup. It's just in a sponge But now. you're not going to eat the damn sponge. No, and you're probably not going to eat that cracker. Let's be honest with that. <laughs> yes, but you will. That's Dave why you does. put crackers in soup. But my, my point is, <laughs> whether you put a bunch of crackers in and you don't want to call it soup anymore, all of the soup that was originally there is still there. It hasn't stopped being soup. It's a soup of Theseus. Okay, well, then Lipton chicken noodle soup with the shitty noodles is still soup because all the soup is still there. It's just evaporated a little. I don't, I don't remember this conversation at all. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but my point is, like, once you wipe up the soup, it doesn't stop being soup just because it's not in the bowl. Uh, similarly, it doesn't stop being soup just because it's now in a cracker. That is all I will say on the matter. But, but, okay... No, you're just wrong. It's Move a on. bowl of soggy <laughs> crackers and soup. No, no, you've turned it into something different now. Soup has become an ingredient in your weird cracker casserole. <laughs> now it's like a porridge. It becomes porridge after a certain viscosity. Yes. Just because you add carrots to your soup doesn't mean they're not still carrots. No, that's, that's, that's not a fair argument. I don't care. This is a podcast. I don't care. Jem uh, being a man. Just manning it up over there. Ooh. Thank you, Jem, for that. All right. Alrighty. Shall we move on to our something nice? I think you all can tell we thoroughly enjoy feedback, so... Send us letters. We appreciate it. We thoroughly enjoy feedback. My, my lovely cousin who listens to us now, she frequently gives me feedback. She was mentioning how we emphasize the P on soup a little too much. <laughs> <laughs> soup. A little editing note. Yeah. <laughs> As the editor, I agree. <laughs> how come we never hear this feedback? Yeah, we, um, it'll be nice once we can record in person again because. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for yeah. many reasons, but. All right, reasons. we do love we do love feedback. So anything you got for us, uh, ideas, suggestions as well. We're ideas, always open to that. Ideas, suggestions, iTunes reviews. Speaking of, thank you to Bonnie T for a five star review. Bonnie has just gotten into podcasts, and she found ours because she's a friend of ours, and she sent us a very nice message about it. So <laughs> thanks, Bonnie. Thanks, Bonnie. We love you, Bonnie. Thanks, Bonnie. Awesome. <laughs> 
All right, so it's that time in the show where we are all forced to think of something that's actually going well in our lives. And I think <laughs> Ashlyn's the only one who's not feeling forced on this <laughs> account. So it's yeah. time for something nice. <laughs> so my something nice is something nice. <laughs> um, I've been posting on Facebook something nice every day as a an exercise in trying to have more sort of a mindfulness practice. And my favorite part of posting something nice every day has been asking other people what their something nice is every day, and they've been telling me about their nice things. And so it's like a doubling up of niceness. It's great. And also, I've really been noticing that I've been noticing that I've been noticing nice things more. <laughs> so several times a day, I'll think about like, oh, this could be my something nice for today. And it's nice to have the awareness that there are many nice things happening all around me every day. That's, That's lovely. That is really nice. I, I enjoy seeing your something nice posts. And I also enjoy seeing everybody else putting their things in there too. Yeah. That's awesome. Jim? So uh, I am... At this moment, about five months behind, maybe six now, on my YouTube subscriptions. <laughs> School's busy. <laughs> um, so I just recently got around to watching a Dan Olson video from last year called In Search of a Flat Earth. And it is great. Um, Dan Olson actually uh, he lives in Alberta. And he did a... Uh, his, his channel's great. Uh, folding ideas. Uh, some of our listeners might be familiar, uh, but he lives in Alberta and he actually did essentially a, like a variation of one of the flat earth experiments himself with a, with a long lake in Alberta. And then he kind of keeps going back and the story that he tells visually it's 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 beautiful and i really enjoy the the way he tells the story but it it goes some weird places and actually connects uh back with ashlyn's segment uh so i uh, i highly recommend it it's called in search of a flat earth cool uh the things that sounds really good yeah the things that i have been enjoying most this last month though have been um both uh studying related uh because i've been Doing a lot of that, and uh, frankly, it is uh, not often something nice, but it's a big part of my day, and so I have I have nice things that go around with it. I've been doing a lot of listening to uh, like Spanish guitar music. A few years ago, when I was in Cambridge in the UK, I was in a pretty bad place. Uh, this is before I left a software development uh, firm that I was very unhappy with. But I, I happened into a plaza in Cambridge and uh, saw a pair of fellows playing guitar. And I just sort of stood there and watched them for... Oh, I, I think it... It ended up being like 45 minutes to an hour, and they were they were just great. And I went away and went to a bank and pulled some money out and bought their CD and like that. I, I don't know if they're still together anymore, but uh, it was the Mangore duo, and uh, I think I think uh, a few of their songs are on SoundCloud or whatever. But uh, it was lovely studying music, and I've also been getting into some of the uh, sort of classic flamenco guitarists like Paco de Lucia and Paco Pena. So the playlist has been growing 
and I've just found that very pleasant, you know, the um, reading my renal notes. The, uh, the Spanish guitar makes it a little bit more bearable. Um, and I've also been really enjoying uh, doing my studying on my remarkable tablet, a tablet that is basically just designed for sort of note taking and PDFs and studying. It's closer to like an e-reader than to a conventional tablet, but it, there's sketching and annotating and and drawing that you can do, and it's just a very, a very pleasant, distraction-free way to read my textbooks uh, and my my slide decks and like that. And so that has all made uh, the past month, which has been largely hellish, uh, a little bit brighter. Cool, nice. Uh, so I'll I'll go with my something nice. I actually thought of some things before Yay. ten seconds ago. So I'm <laughs> pat on the back for me tonight. So the first something nice is the show Taste the Nation with Padma Lakshmi. Mm, I've heard good things. It is lovely. I I'm only three episodes in, but I love it. And I I knew of Padma, but I really never. I didn't watch what show was she on? Top Chef, Master Top Chef. Chef. Okay, whatever. I. I didn't watch that show. I just knew she was on it and that, um, but she, she is incredibly beautiful. My goodness, is she beautiful. Um, but all Laura talks about how beautiful Padma Lakshmi is. She's also wonderful to, to just watch. Like she, she just seems very kind and like. Laura's got a crush. Welcome to the team, Laura. (laughs) Just enough. She's just really pretty. Okay, guys. But she, I just, I really enjoy the way that she approaches the show. So it has, if you're not familiar, it's, um, it's very similar to No Reservations, um, like Anthony Bourdain's shows, but it has a female lead and she talks a little bit more political about certain issues and she makes a point of visiting places that, of course, have great food, but where there's also challenges going on. So um, in the very first episode, she goes to El Paso, Texas, and talks a lot about the border wall and how, you know, how life was before the the border wall and now and what that means and the disparities between people, like literal families, like grandma lives on one side of the wall, we live on the other, and how that disrupts things for them but also makes you want to eat tacos like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> so it's super enjoyable so far. I can't wait to watch more of it. Um, the way that I heard about this show is through one of my favorite podcasts, which is Gastropod. Also, you should definitely go listen to Gastropod if you like food. Um, and they were talking about food TV. And what was so frustrating was that they were saying that Padma, who is well known in the food and food TV circles, pitched the show and couldn't get any networks to pick it up. Even though she worked on Food Network for so long, they wouldn't do it. And so she finally got picked up by Hulu, and I really suggest you watching it if you can. It's it's uh, super enjoyable. So I've been enjoying that. And I actually have a second something nice. It is a podcast called Under the Influence. Now, there's a few different podcasts by this name. This one is by Joe Piazza. And it's all about her quest to understand and potentially become a mommy influencer on Instagram. I will say it's not always, it doesn't always make you feel great, but it is very enjoyable to listen to. And it's great to hear people expose all of those, as she says, like dirty little secrets that nobody wants to talk about, about all those perfect lives and perfect memes that you see coming out of Instagram. Very cool. Yeah. 
Lauren? All right. Mine starts out as a bit of a bummer, but... (laughs) So, Tuesday, we had the big melt here, and a little bit of our basement flooded. Oh, no. I mean, you two have been in our basement in the rec room. It was underneath the... Like, it came down the wall and sort of underneath the whole piano area. Oh, no. Luckily, the piano is safe because it was up on its you know stand it's an electric piano that was up in its stand and i lost some sheet music but my something nice is our second hand uh rug cleaner no because i didn't have to go out to the shed find the wet dry vac that's probably in the back somewhere may not work Uh, i had a cleaner that was able to get all of the gross water out of the carpet and i'm not even going to talk about maybe having to open that wall because this is something nice and not something devastating. <laughs> uh, yes. But the carpet is pretty much back to normal. Yay! So, nice. yay, yay, something for nice. Useful appliances. That's awesome. Yes. <laughs> and Dave was working nights, so I had to teach myself how to use it and like be an adult and not just say, Dave, fix it. <laughs> My secondary something nice is that our very sick kitty, Lexa, has come to cuddle me. It's putting up with my petting her. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm glad she's finding comfort. <laughs> Lexa lives I- almost exclusively upstairs in the loft with Ashlyn now. Aww. Underneath the cutting table. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks, Lauren. That really is something nice. Those unexpected something nices or those things when you are very thankful for something. That's that's awesome. Great. It's nice to have the tool to do the job. Exactly. Yes. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining me to talk about the wellness industry tonight. This was uh, really, really great. I think we had a lot of great conversations. So thanks for this. Thanks for hosting, Laura. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. I had to learn how to write a segment again because I had forgotten. (laughs) Well, you did a great job. So thank you for that, Lauren. All right. So what are we talking about next month? Uh, I believe I'll be hosting next month again. Uh, and we are going to be talking a little bit about medical history. Yay. Should be and, good. And not just because I wanted to repurpose some research I already had to do for school. <laughs> but mostly because of that, He right? lied. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> It'll be fun, though. I promise. It will be fun. Yeah. All right. I promise to talk about somebody unexpected. Excellent. Ooh. Well, good night, everyone. Have a great night. Take care. Good night. Night. Give us reviews. <laughs> Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble, with mix and tech production by Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Jem Newman. Is that cats or kids screaming in the background? That is a cat. (laughs) Okay. Wasn't sure if it was something you needed to attend to or if it was... I didn't hear anything. Well, she shouldn't have got on the fridge. However...
I gave her Kaboom. treats, and she is off the fridge. She should be fine. Oh, good. Was the gray one? Of course it was the gray one. All right. <laughs> she has a piece. name, Jim. <laughs> yeah, she has a name, Jim. I had a presentation la last week, I think, uh, on the subject of the business of medicine and some of the financial issues associated with practice. And there were... <laughs> There was a lot of questionable content, uh, including um, uh, talking about how, you know, you should hire somebody to do your admin because your time is much more valuable spent be being, a being, being a doctor, which is uh, is true in the sense that you have specialized training. Uh, and that specialized training is probably not centered on how to run a clinic, but is centered on how to do medicine. And so, like, you can use your skills to the best sure. uh, in, in an optimal way to do that and make more money for the clinic. But the but the the implication that followed that was that you get to keep all of that money and then pay a pittance to the people that you have doing your admin. <laughs> uh, and And not more like... We're all in this together. Let's make this clinic a co-op, for example. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can guess which model you'd lean towards. <laughs> <laughs> but but then um, the the second piece of advice was uh, was start uh, start trying to generate passive income as quickly as you can. Uh, basically, talking about how all doctors should like become landlords immediately so that they don't have to practice forever. <laughs> I still go with intent. So yes, it's soup. It's soup. I'm gonna go and it with will soup. be soup again. Yes, exactly. <laughs> once in future soup. <laughs> I got the once in future king right here on my shelf. <laughs> I was actually looking at your shelf behind you, Lauren, and every time I'm like, "Is is Lauren in my office?" <laughs> it looks nope. So much like my bookshelf. <laughs> this is our Brandon Sanderson shelf behind my head. This is our. Uh, yeah, fantasy the, and science fiction section. The the Robert Jordan. I see the Douglas Adams. I yeah. Yeah, a lot of there's cookbooks down here. Mm -hmm. But the the other stuff, the Once and Future Kings, on the one of the other bookshelves you can't see. And I think this is one of those situations where I'm going to pull out that classic phrase: "Wellness is kind of hard to define, but you know it when you see it." What, Jim? Does the phrase "You'll know it when you see it" cause you physical pain? I I wasn't actually talking about pornography, but he was trying to make it dirty. <laughs> Never. <laughs> I would never. How dare you? <laughs> You're too tired to function. Anyway, yes. back. Let me host this damn show, okay? <laughs> I'm trying. Okay. What was I saying? Oh well. Um. Okay. You know what? When you see it, right? <laughs> Sorry, Laura. <laughs> what does hosting a podcast look like? Well, I know it when I see it. <laughs> You dick. <laughs> oh, God, that's that's good. I like that. Thanks, Dan. Um, okay.